One of the greatest ways to capture a tremendous amount of wisdom is to look at cartoons. Really. Because cartoons are economy of language. And they highlight something that everybody has experienced or knows about in real life in just a few frames, with just a few words. One of the classic cartoonists, of course, is Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. You may remember this rendition, which has been run a number of times, variations on it, where Lucy holds a football for Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown runs up to kick the football, and Lucy pulls it away at the last moment, and Charlie Brown kicks as hard as he can, goes up in the air, and falls on his back. You might call that naive trust. Because year after year, Charlie Brown does it again. Lucy convinces him every time, this time it'll be different, I'm not going to trick you. I'll hold the football until you kick it. And she doesn't. Question. Have you ever felt like God was Lucy? Honestly. Have you ever felt like God invited you to ask? To beg? To persist? And then He promised? And He pulled the football away? Probably, if you're honest, you're thinking, yeah, I've been there. Those kind of questions come out of a passage like this, don't they? Ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it'll be open to you. Unequivocal promise from God. Sometimes when we hear a promise from someone, we realize that the promise, unfulfilled, is deliberately harmful. That's the cartoon of Lucy. She knows she's going to do it straight up, and she does it to put Charlie Brown on his back and make him feel and look like a fool. On other occasions, though, when a promise is delivered by someone and you feel that it is not fulfilled, it might not be deliberate hurtfulness on the part of the one who promised It may be that we've just misinterpreted the promise. We can do that, you know. We can hear the promise the way we want to hear it. And on occasion, when we hear promises like this, we basically assume that this promise is absolutely open-ended. It stands on its own. It's out there. It's a promise. Ask, and you're going to get it. I don't actually think that's true. But if we're going to understand such promises well, how do we go about it? The first suggestion is this. We ask, what is the context? If we're going to understand the promise, what is the context? That's important in any conversation, correct? If you and I are having a conversation and I say to you, here's a promise, you want to know the context from which I'm speaking. What's the context? What is the context of this promise? It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Beatitudes. If you take it in the context of the Beatitudes, you remember something. The Beatitudes 
The Sermon on the Mount begins this way. Blessed are the poor, or the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, those who take a back seat to everyone and allow everybody else's interests to be served first, because you're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those of you who have a right not to forgive, but forgive anyway. Blessed are those who are merciful. Because based on your mercy, you're going to obtain mercy. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now read the phrases. Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock, it will be opened unto you. What's the context? The context is a group of people listening to the words of Jesus and he's introducing the kingdom of God and he's saying, join this kingdom of God. I've got a new kind of life for you. As a matter of fact, some things have been turned upside down. You heard it in my words to begin with. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are persecuted. This is a new kind of way of thinking about life. And I want you to enter into it. I want you to live in the kingdom so that you can get the rewards of the kingdom. And I want you, as you try to enter into the kingdom, to inherit its rewards, to remember this. When you're striving to live well in the kingdom, when your heart is inclined towards me, ask. And you'll receive. Seek. And you'll find. Knock, and it'll be open to you. If you're truly trying to live in the kingdom, I'll give you what you need to live in it. That's a little different way of looking at the promise, isn't it? So the first thing we do when we hear a promise is we ask, what is the context? I think another question that's appropriate when we try to understand the promise is we ask, what is the contrast? Now, in the Old Testament, routinely, God spoke with contrasting language. He frequently would say things like this. I am the God of, and he would describe himself, not like the gods of, and he would describe other gods. He would say, that's not me, this is me. They act like this, I respond this way. I want you to know who I am. So when Jesus says, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it will be open unto you, what's the contrast? Uh, what's the contemporary contrast? The first two might not have been a contrast that they would have thought of, but it ought to be a contrast that we think of. The first contrast is atheism. In other words, God is saying, I am here. I am present compared to, contrasted to, a worldview that says God is not there. And if He's there, He's silent. That's not true. I'm present. I'm with you. When I was younger, and I heard the anger of many atheists over declarations concerning the existence of God, 
I think I routinely responded in kind. I tried to come up with arguments that were just as angry as theirs. Now that I've passed 50, I think when I hear those same things from atheists, I no longer feel that way. I just feel overwhelmingly sad. There's nobody there. There's nobody to ask. There's no deity who cares. Jesus is saying, by contrast, I want you to know that I'm there and I hear. There's another contrast that you might see in your world. People who basically have sort of a deistic view of God. That is, a God who just sort of put everything in motion, who created the world and then checked out and you're on your own. Oh yeah, there's a God, but he probably doesn't care. And he certainly doesn't listen. The Beatitudes and these words in context of the Beatitudes says that's entirely not true. I'm a loving Heavenly Father. I listen and I care. What might have been a contemporary contrast for them, not so much for us, was the gods that they'd heard so much about, the Greek gods of Greek mythology. Jesus is painting himself as a contrast to those gods too. He says, with those gods, in effect, if these people were thinking of those gods, and they may have been, you know that Greek mythology introduces you to gods who are manipulative, malevolent, jealous, spiteful. The gods of Mount Olympus. As a matter of fact, if you were to request something of the gods of Greek mythology, you know what you might get? You might get an answer for the purpose of spiting another god. Your request may be used in the hands of the god that you prayed to to do something harmful to another god you didn't pray to. And the other god you didn't pray to was in conflict with the god who gave you your request. You were being used. That's part of the wonderful history of Greek mythology and the gods. It may also be that according to Greek mythology, if you were to ask, as Jesus says, you can ask of me, you may be given your request, but for a reason that, well, was really kind of sinister. There's a story in ancient Greek mythology of uh, the goddess Aurora, who was the goddess of the dawn. The goddess Aurora fell in love with a handsome young mortal, a God-loving immortal. She was overwhelmed by him. And Zeus, the king of the gods, granted her this. He says, I know you love this young man. I'll grant you a gift. Tell me what you want for him, and I'll give it to him unconditionally. Aurora said, here's what I want. I want for him that he would never die. Humans die. Gods don't. Her love for the human was so great she couldn't imagine living without him even as a god. And she said, give him the ability to never die. Eternal life, as it was. Zeus, knowing her full well and that her request was incomplete, 
gave the young man, the mortal, eternal life. But what Aurora failed to request is that Zeus would also give him eternal youth. So this mortal got older and older and older and he could not die. The one she loved faded from her existence but was there all the time. Talk about manipulative. You see, basically God is saying in Jesus Christ, I'm not that kind of God. That's quite a contrast. So if we see the context and we see the contrast, what's the commitment? In other words, what is the exact nature of the promise? Right? That's the third question. And here is the exact nature of the promise. Jesus says, God is like a good parent. He's assuming that most parents are good. God is like a good parent, and God would not give you something bad when you ask for something good. In other words, when you ask for something good, He would not give you something that harms you. Like a scorpion or a snake, if you ask for a fish. Furthermore, God is not the kind of God that if you ask Him, He would trick you. If you ask Him for bread, He wouldn't give you a stone that looked like bread. He's not going to do that. He's not a God of trickery. He's not a God of harm. But God is not, according to this text, a doting grandparent or a parent who can never say no. God is not a parent who always says yes to every single request. Or else he'd create a spoiled child. Um, movies are sometimes uh, really great, poignant illustrations of theological points, sometimes really bad. Other times, it's pretty good. Um, how many of you have seen the movie Bruce Almighty? Right? Yeah, most of you have. Bruce Almighty is a great movie because basically I think it's Morgan Freeman plays God in the white suit, shows up uh, to uh, Jim Carrey, who's Bruce, and he says, uh, you've been complaining basically incessantly about how things are, and in effect, I'm inserting this, you're saying what a lot of other people are saying. If I was God, things would be different around here, right? So God says to Jim Carrey, Bruce, I'll give you the ability to be God for a day. You got all the powers... Do it right, man. Have at it. It's your turn to be God. And here's how at least part of the sequence goes. <laughs> yeah, it would be harder than you think, wouldn't it? <laughs> what, what follows uh, that scene is uh, Jim Carrey goes to a party, and he's the life of the party because people happen to know that being around him brings him good luck. They don't know the extent of it, but people are walking up the stairs and they're talking about their day. And this one guy says, you wouldn't believe what happened. My stock's tripled in five hours. Another person's walking with what looks like his girlfriend. And she looks up at him and said, you've gotten a lot taller. He said, yeah, I have. So everybody's request is being answered. He meets with his uh, wife that he's having marital problems with later at a day school. And uh, he says, how are things going? She said, things are going fine. Oh, she said, by the way, Jennifer won the lottery. And he said, oh. She said, yeah, but 400,000 other people did too, so she only won $17. (laughs) 
the point is, God doesn't say yes to everything, right? We know that. And if he did, it would be chaos. Not just global chaos, but personal chaos. Honestly. How many requests are you glad in retrospect that God did not answer? God has promised that when we ask, we'll receive. When we seek, we find. When we knock, it's going to be open to us. And what's he going to give us? He's going to give us things that are not harmful to us. He's going to give us, as the text says, good things. Who defines good? God does. Aren't you glad? He's sovereign. We're not. So in conclusion, what about all this business of asking and receiving? Just a few things we know absolutely from Scripture about this topic. One, we know, as Jesus says, that your Father in heaven knows your needs even before you ask. As one of the famous written prayers of the church says, He knows your needs before you ask and your ignorance in asking. He knows it all. Second, He asks you to ask. That may be one of the key points of this passage. God says to you, ask, seek, knock, keep it up. Really, when you think about it in terms of being a parent, would you want your children to stop asking? Oh, honestly, I know, especially when they're little. Sometimes it's just overwhelming and a little annoying because they always ask for things they don't need and for what you can't or don't want to give them. But would you want them to stop? Really? My kids are grown. They're on their own. And I miss them. My wife and I miss them. But you know what we take great delight in? I, I, I know I do. It's when I get a phone call and they ask. I don't really care what they ask. They're asking me. I'm their father. I love them. And I want to hear them ask. Because honestly... I don't mean this in a sanctimonious way. But if I could do anything for them, even if it was to my own hurt, I'd do it. I love them that much. God says, ask. I already know. I already know what you need. But I want you to ask. I love the way P.T. Forsyth, uh, Christian author put it one time. He said, love loves to be told what it already knows. It wants to be asked 
for what it longs to give. That's a picture of God, it seems to me. So first, God knows your needs before you ask and even your ignorance in asking. And He wants you to ask. And third, we know this. God loves you and He wants what's best for you. I love my kids and I want what's best for them. That's why so frequently I said no. But I still wanted them to ask. Isaiah 49, playing out this theme, the prophet says, could a mother really forget her infant? Again, in a generic, general kind of way, of course, some can, but the reality is mothers don't abandon their infants by normal course of affairs. He said, God is your God. He loves you like that mother. He can't forget you. Oh, at the end of this, something occurred to me really very late in the day. As I studied this passage, I thought of it as a passage primarily about prayer. And then it occurred to me, well, maybe it's not primarily about prayer. It's primarily about trust. It's primarily a passage about faith. Can you ask, God says, passionately, persistently, and at the same time, can you trust me? Can you trust me when I say no? Can you trust me when I give you something that you think is going to ruin your life? I'm the God who knows. Can you trust me? Maybe that's the real question. Ask, and you'll receive. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be open to you. Because he is a good God. And in the words of one of the songs we just sang, which comes from Paul, he makes all things work together for our good. Oh, really, Really, the final comment. You know how this passage ends? In what appears to be a random way, a little bit like last week, a thought kind of out of nowhere. He's talking about asking and receiving and seeking and finding, and then he says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Because this pretty well summarizes everything I've been saying in my Sermon on the Mount, in the Law and the Prophets. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I had never seen it before quite this way. But after reading it over and over, it's a reminder to me. Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be open to you. But don't forget, it's not all about you. It's about God. It's about others. It's about the kingdom. I invite you to live that way. And go ahead and ask, because I'm a good God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can trust you. 
It doesn't mean we like all our situations. It doesn't mean we're fond of those times when you say no. It doesn't mean that we understand. It doesn't mean that we appreciate everything you bring into our lives. But Lord, we want to trust you completely. And honestly, it's so hard. Because we're mortal and we we can't see the future and and we can't see ourselves. And we think we know what's best. But in our most honest moments, we know full well that we don't have self-knowledge or future knowledge. So God, we turn ourselves completely over to you. We ask that you will allow us to live in your kingdom in such a way that when we ask and when we seek and when we knock, we're doing it with an eye towards living in your kingdom, which will give us our our greatest satisfaction, our most intense blessing, as the Beatitudes say. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to even well be talking this way to God. We thank you that you listen, that you hear, and that you answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.